Live from London, this is Monocle on Sunday with me, Tom Edwards. Coming up on today's programme, my panellists, Terry Stiasny and Tessa Shiskovitz, will be here in the studio in London to round up today's main stories. This week, it's been more of a case of a main story, here in London at least. So we learned this week that the generally preferred method of showing respect seems to be not doing whatever it is you usually purport to do. And yes, we did have a bit of a think about following this example ourselves, but were concerned that our employers would then have shown their respect. More about Andrew Muller's thoughts this week will be revealed later. Also ahead, we'll be crossing to one of Monocle's other global team of editors. Who's there? Hello, I'm James Chambers, Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau Chief, and I'll be joining the show a little later on to talk about the news stories that are making the headlines this weekend in my part of the world. Thank you very much, James. We are looking forward to that. All that and more ahead here on Monocle on Sunday, coming to you live from London. Yes, a very, very good morning to you from London. I hope you're having a great day. Wherever in the world we find you this Sunday, uh, the perfect soundtrack to your day, guaranteed as always on Monocle 24. And it's only going to get better, my friends, because I'm bringing you today's panellists. I'm joined in the studio by the political journalist and author, Terry Stiasny. Terry, good morning. Good morning. And also by Tessa Shiskovitz, UK correspondent for the Austrian magazine Profile. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Morgans, I should say. Uh, look, I mentioned uh, in the menu really one story that's dominated certainly the news agenda, but it's kind of dominated the, the discourse. It's dominated every conversation. And I just wanted to get a couple of reflections from you both about a, an unusual uh, week uh, in London. Um, Terry, I'll come to you first of all. I know you've had a bit of a wonder. You've seen some of the kind of extraordinary expressions of civic... I don't know, reaction to, to, to the passing of Queen Elizabeth. What have you made of this uh, unusual week? It's strange. I think it's weird how you can move within London from sort of completely normal life to uh, a very different sort of atmosphere. So, for instance, you know, I would gone out to a, a yoga class and that was all going on perfectly as normal. And I thought, no, I haven't really seen any of what's going on apart from through the experiences of friends who had joined the queue. So I thought, well, I'll just take a quick trip down and go and look at the queue. So I went across Tower Bridge on the bike and the, the queue itself had almost become a tourist attraction. So you're standing on Tower Bridge, which is normally a thing that people come to take photos of in London. And so people were leaning over the edge of the bridge and going, that's the queue. That's the queue for the Queen. Look at all the people lining up to see the Queen and everybody taking, including myself, taking photos of this. And there you could see this queue stretching all the way along the south bank of the Thames for, for as far as you could see. So, And I, I didn't even try to get near to Buckingham Palace and Green Park because there's so many hours. I think it was saying taking at one point six hours to walk between Green Park, which is on Piccadilly, and Buckingham Palace, which is normally, I would say, probably a ten-minute walk at the absolute most. Uh, so there's just the, the sheer, sheer weight of people. But then if you go back to a different part of London, where I live, you don't really notice any difference at all. Obviously, people are thinking about it and talking about it, but otherwise not. Oh, well, what would we thinking and talking about it a great deal. Uh, in the next uh, 60 minutes or so, uh, Tessa, it occurs to me, is the queue the quintessential expression of Britain in, I don't know, in, of Britain in the modern world? No, Nobody queues like the Brits, do they? I mean, that's a, a, an amazing sort of uh, visual representation of what we're, one of the few things we're still good at as a country. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think it's also that for 10 days now, we've been constantly reporting on the proceedings and 
So things that usually would not take center stage take center stage because there's nothing else actually going on than people queuing for days and days and days to see the Queen or so to, to farewell. Uh, so what I think is interesting is that this phenomenon of the of the queue has now become also the subject of scientific studies. And um, so why do people stand in line for 24 hours for a few seconds alongside the Queen's coffin? And the scientists who have come down, the behavioral scientists who sort of look at these things, found out that A, and a, a narrow majority vote conservative. That is not a huge surprise. But two-thirds backed remain in the EU referendum, which I thought was quite interesting. So I would say, like, these are the kind people of Britain who come together in the queue for the, pre for the Queen. And then uh, a general uh, feeling of subdued positivity has been, while waiting in the line, has been also noticed by the scientists. And I guess that's also because you have this community feeling when you stand there and everyone is mm. sort of going through a little bit of hardship in order to pay respect. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that one of the, you know, those sort of, various people find very, things to be outraged about and what any the most outrageous thing that anybody can do is try to skip the line because of you know being a celebrity so whereas David Beckham was praised for spending all day you know dutifully in the queue you know other TV presenters who managed to get to the front by other means were you know come in for sort of public sort of disgust but you know it's all about yeah the belonging it's about standing next to everybody whoever they are and I think for a lot of people it's actually about a sort of connection to previous generations, a connection to the past. So it's talking to friends who've been there. There's some, you know, they come partly because their parents or whatever had queued to see Churchill's funeral. A lot of people talking about how, you know, their mother would have come or their grandmother would have come or their, their grandfather was fought in the war or somebody loved the Queen. So it's almost as much about your personal connection to history as it is about sort of the Queen herself. Well, and I find this idea of the role of nostalgia in all of this really fascinating. And Tessa, I know you were writing this week um, alongside some of our other contributors, I think Stephanie Bolton as well, in The, in the Guardian, about how surprised you'd been by some of the response uh, in Austria. And, of course, a, you know, a very proud and clear, focused republic with a complicated relationship with its own monarchy. And yet there's been a deep fascination. Is that to do with... Is that an expression of nostalgia or is it possibly something slightly different. Well, interestingly, you know, Austria, of course, has had a empire by itself. And, and for a hundred years now, Austria is a more or less proud republic, at least since after the Second World War. Um, but I think the sympathy for the Queen goes uh, is a personal thing, because she's been around all our lives in a way too, even if we are not her subjects. But what I found interesting is that um, the state television and also the private channels, there was like endless, endless programming, like almost like here, the BBC covering the entire proceedings and people talking about their personal uh, experiences with coming to London and all these kind of things. And I think one of the reasons for that is also people enjoy having a bit of a break from discussing energy. Uh, rising energy prices and the war in the Ukraine and all this, uh, the fear, the threat, the, the feeling of Zeitenwende, that nothing is the same anymore. So she was the same for many, many years. And I think that plays a little bit into this whole grief, this um, huge amount of grief that is sort of going through uh, Europe also, not only through Britain. Well, and the world indeed. And I think, Terry, one thing I found interesting, I, you know, 
I had always um, believed that in countries like Canada or in Australia, there was a sort of a, an ongoing acceptance, a tolerance of the role of the royal family in their public life. And it was tied very clearly to the Queen, who was held in, in, in a great deal of affection. What surprised me, though, is not that um, that's not that's not the case. It seems very genuine. It seems a very... It's not just that constancy. It's not just familiarity over seven decades of service. People, even and younger people as well, seem to have a great deal of affection for her. And I, that wrong-footed me. And I was not expecting to see that kind of expression of emotion in those in those markets. Do, do you think that perhaps those of us, and you know, I'm a kind of a Republican and I've seen the direction of travel, have we misjudged maybe, not the mood in some of those places, but certainly the timetable? Because I was thinking... You know, the Queen won't be the head of state, whether that's in Australia or in Canada, by 2025, 2030. Do, do you think maybe that needs some revision, that kind of attitude? I think it's interesting. I think it's you probably we probably can't generalise across the whole of of the Commonwealth. You know, obviously recently we've seen some countries voting, uh, deciding to get rid of the Queen as the head of state. I think probably you know in a way there might be a pause on any of those moves at the moment. You know, almost to you know give Charles a chance, see how it goes. And I think yeah, as you say, there is this genuine emotion and a genuine uh, sense of connection that seems to have have come up. I mean, I remember some of the stories in the week about Canadian citizenship ceremonies having to be paused while they literally decided, you know, hang on, who, who are we pledging allegiance to here? Oh, you know, we've got to suddenly change the words and, you know, swear in new Canadians as, you know, pledging their allegiance to the king rather than to the queen. So that, you know, it's obviously still present, you know, even for, for new citizens as well. So, yeah, it'll be interesting to see over the next few years whether that, you know, whether that continues or whether sort of gradually there is more of a shift towards uh, republicanism, which I think is what a lot of people thought might happen. Uh, once Charles, you know, acceded to the throne, that that would be one of the challenges for him. And I think, you know, partly this, all the shows and all the diplomatic displays and everything that we will have had this week are there, obviously, to help show this continuity and create that sense of connection again. Well, you mentioned the, the diplomacy, and I find this as interesting as the pomp and circumstance. Um, it's a proper diplomatic bum fight. We think, what, 500 leading dignitaries, heads of state, most of the kind of big, big players with some very noticeable exceptions. Um, and it's funny, you know, the, the civil service have had to jump through a whole number of hoops to try and accommodate people who can't sit behind or next to this person and all the rest of it. It's fascinating, uh, isn't it, Tessa? And it's also... Um, deeply interesting to speculate who's going to be meeting who you know is it is it remiss to attempt to get a bit of a bilateral going on the margins when we're supposed to be here in you know in in remembrance um but certainly that that side of this is is as compelling as some of the big uh, political maneuverings that are happening domestically aren't they oh definitely i mean there's a story in the Times today, which is titled "The Seating Plan from Hell." I mean, it is really not the easiest thing to do uh, to 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 um, cater to the vanities uh, of um, <clears throat> presidents and and heads of state. My peak interest uh, in, in all this was uh, the question: if, for example, the Austrian president would end up behind a pillar, because somebody will have to sit behind a pillar. Um, if, as you say, people sit next to each other who hate their guts uh, and uh, and they will try to avoid that, of course, too. But, of course, the notable exceptions of people not having been invited, Russia, obviously, Syria, also quite obviously, 
Belarus, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Venezuela. So a few uh, of these leaders will be missing, but most of them will come. And then there's the other question, if Joe Biden, who not only was told uh, at the beginning that he had to take the bus to get to the Abbey, which he refused because he needs to be better protected, he thinks, and he's probably even right in this, the idea that Biden would squeeze in next to um, the German president, Frank-Walter Steinmeier or something, would be cute, but will not be accepted by his security um, units around him. But so uh, uh, the other one, of course, who didn't want to come with Le Bus is Emmanuel Macron, who also said, like, thank you very much. I'm coming with my limousine. Um, <laughs> but uh, all this, of course, is highly um, also, you know, it's an atmospheric and uh, things. But interestingly, is uh, uh, Joe Biden has canceled his bilateral meeting with Liz Truss. And that's where we enter political territory, which, of course, is also mm-hmm. happening Um Uh, at this funeral, it's not only about the grief for the Queen and a common sort of uh, demonstration of diplomatic uh, unity of world leaders, but it's also the question if Liz Truss dares to cancel the Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol this fall, and if Joe Biden wants to tell her that uh, in a quiet bilateral meeting at the UN on Wednesday rather than today when nobody really wants to open these uh, very, very, very sensitive and tricky political questions. And I know, as you were wandering, uh, sort of not too far from uh, Monocle Towers here in London this week, you did speculate, I thought interestingly, about what might have prompted Biden uh, to delay or reschedule that that meeting you had a you had a sort of a colorful theory which i will invite you to share with all yeah with all i mean yesterday night i passed through the park the regent's park and so half of the park or, or the top of it is already closed because joe biden arrived there in the residence of the ambassador and i was thinking why does he cancel a bilateral meeting with this sort of top person, political person now in the country, Liz Truss. Maybe there is someone more important. Who could be the more important person? And then I thought, like, maybe um, Volodymyr Zelensky secretly will sneak into the country and appear at the funeral, <laughs> sitting between Liz Truss and Joe Biden tomorrow, waving at uh, Vladimir Putin and sort of giving us a speech about the necessity to stand together against the Russian aggression. I mean, Terry, that would be pretty amazing. He'd have to get he'd have to get a suit press because I think he'd have to lose I his t-shirt. I think they would have to, you know, imagine if, they, if he if he was spotted, sort of running around London's department stores trying to find a, a nice black suit and a black tie. And that was, a, I mean, yeah, obviously that would be a sort of. I think maybe you would worry about that if you were Liz Truss because you'd think I don't want anything to overshadow the funeral. And actually, having Vladimir Zelensky turn up and sit in one of the front rows would be would be exciting for all of us. But uh, and whether, of course, he'd want to leave the country, you know, at, the, at a time like this, but. Is it's yeah, challenging optics. Well, we might talk a bit more about Liz Truss a bit later in the programme and some of the challenges. And indeed, you know, not, this is obviously not a welcome distraction in, in any sense of the word, but whether it's given her so, some wiggle room. But just mentioning Zelensky and Ukraine, and I guess it is important not to become so sort of transfixed by what's happening that we overlook potentially seismic events that have been unfolding over the past you know, week or so within Ukraine. Unprecedented gains, certainly, in this campaign um just as a a, a sort of detour but i think it's a germane question are we reaching a point as a potentially where we have to consider the the prospect of russia 
being defeated? I mean, is that is that is, does it remain incomprehensible? Do those huge gains, whatever eight thousand square kilometers in a matter of days, suggest that that is now not merely in the realms of fantasy? Well, I would always warn everyone, including myself, in seeing signs of Russia uh, being defeated, because that's a very long way to go. And also, the more Putin feels humiliated because his troops cannot keep all the conquered territory under control, uh, the more he might do things that might be even more uh, terrible, like uh, tactical nuclear weapons being actually used. So I, I would really worry very much about anything good coming out uh, of this. However, of course, the fact that the Ukrainian army propped up by weapons from the UK and from the US and many other countries and the diplomatic sanctions against Russia that the EU states also brought in. So there was a certain unity in this in the last month. And this has shown that you can also confront an aggressor uh, that you thought at the beginning of the year, we all thought like, okay, so he will march in and take the country. So that's a good thing. It doesn't make me very sort of optimistic that a lot of good things will come out for the Ukrainian civilians there in the next month, because what we have also seen uh, in the last days, the liberated territories that people find, we have by now found 10 torture chambers in this uh, uh, liberated region where people have been gone through horrible, horrible torture. And also Zelensky said something at night in his um, daily video message, he says that um, they don't make soap out of our skins, out of our, out of our victims, and they don't make lamps out of our skins. But the principle is the same. Uh, this is what the Nazis did to the Jews. And that's what Russia is doing to the Ukrainians. And it's really, you know, as an Austrian also, I'm always very sensitive sensitive to comparisons to the Holocaust. I don't think you have to compare everything to the Holocaust nowadays because it was a quite unique uh, uh, um, thing that happened. But in a way, Zelensky drives the message home that these are innocent people who are being slaughtered for a pure nationalistic a dictatorship that is gone out of control completely. And we all have to see that we don't forget the situation and that we do political things that we can do to stop this. Uh, and Sarah, I mean, that's a, it's, it's a good point. And I guess there is an opportunity on Monday and in the days surrounding uh, the, the, the funeral of Queen Elizabeth there is an opportunity for consequential dialogue between some of the key stakeholders for whom it is very difficult to get those moments to reflect and to discuss deeply. Um, that's not insensitive. It's yeah. simple political expediency. It is, that that and happens. I think obviously it will carry on in the next week because, you know, normal times they were, these people would, lead, many leaders would all be meeting at the UN General Assembly and obviously people are going on afterwards, probably, you know, effectively directly from the funeral to, to go to New York. And perhaps this is... A time, it's certainly a time when we've seen that you know, help, as Tessa was saying, from other countries to Ukraine has made an immediate tactical difference on the ground. You know, we had sort of announcements of what, what supplies they were going to get and then we just saw this amazing pushback. And it's, you know, interesting how that will continue, how much further it's going to go. And, and again, whether, as Tessa was saying, you know, a, a more wounded Putin is a more dangerous Putin. I mean, he was obviously dangerous before, even before he was wounded. But what he will, how he will react to this. And, of course, the importance of having 
uh, international cooperation in terms of the investigators on the ground, people looking at war crimes. Mm. I mean, I would imagine one of the things that they will be talking about is, you know, do you set up an international war crimes tribunal to try and find out what's going on and how on earth do you start to bring uh, Russian soldiers to justice when presumably most of them have just withdrawn and, and gone back in into Russia apart from people who've been been taken prisoner. But that, that's just another example of the set of expertise there is, like we were just talking earlier about the expertise in diplomacy, about how you arrange meetings like this, but also in trying to investigate what's happened in something like this on the ground. And, you know, it has to be done very carefully and it has to be done very well and hopefully people will find out what happened and who was responsible. Uh, now, it's funny, there's a bit of an echo chamber in terms of the media coverage of this, certainly here in London, um, but it is instructive to always look without uh, stories that are moving, as in Ukraine, but also to look across the European papers. And, you know, It's a week in which I've seen stories that in any other week would be the first thing on our list to discuss, whether that's the direction of political travel in Italy with elections ahead, Sweden this week, you know, really extraordinary. Is there a bit of a risk? And again, this is a there's a domestic political concern about this here with the, the, the new trust administration that we slightly take our off the ball and we don't scrutinise, you know, the, the discussions that are happening in Stockholm or wherever, um, and we we lose sight and we delay, well, not fatally delay, but we delay and we will pay a price later. Is that is that something I don't know? Is that something we need to be slightly more mindful of? Well, first of all, we are sitting here on a Sunday morning working hard in a radio studio in the center of London. So we do think about these things and we do work. And But secondly, wait till Tuesday morning. I mean, this mm. is sort of mm. now, we, we give this time to the Queen and, and people pay respect. <clears throat> but Tuesday morning, of course, we'll go back to normal political business. And as you say, it is just also very difficult on the normal political level, like the far right in Sweden and Italy sort of entering possibly power, uh, which will be very difficult for the European Union to uh, continue doing what they're doing now in terms also of um, hard anti-Putin uh, sanctions and, and, and politics because the Italian far right might be more prone to uh, soften sanctions and the stance on this and, and, and Sweden similar. And of course you have um, Viktor Orban in Hungary who is a very strong uh, supporter of lifting sanctions and not continuing this. So we are all going now from now on I think in full speed into a winter of discontent and all these uh, civilians um, uh, at home that cannot heat or feed their children it's it's just i mean it's just all very very complicated from now on so this is the last moment of um thinking about uh the queen and pay this respect and so i think we can we can you know it's it won't be a permanent feature no that tuesday morning feeling is going to be interesting just just on that terry it's interesting i think it's in the observer today they warn of the risk of this sort of performative unity and that it's masking this kind of broiling crises that are that are going on do you think there is um it's understandable media certainly newspapers will follow the, the the dominating story but is there something of the performance do you think about these statements as we head for this winter of uh, discontent which seems to have its icy fingers in ever more geographies is, is that a something that concerns you 
I think, you know, it's a fixed amount of time um, and there is slight, a sort of vacuum of normal politics and I think, yes, once it's Tuesday, once, you know, this sort of vacuum will be broken and normal politics will rush in again. And I think, you know, again, it's it's not being all that strictly observed because we're already seeing briefings as to what's going to happen, certainly in British politics next week. So British politics, you know, Liz Truss has had this very, very strange first two weeks where within, you know, two, three days of becoming Prime Minister, the Queen's died and, you know, we've gone into this state of, of mourning and she's having to greet all the world leaders and so forth and, and be present at all of these services. Suddenly, now she's got to get back. She's got to go to the UN, uh, meet Joe Biden, uh, then come back, uh, then have on Friday, we're expecting to have this sort of mini budget financial statement where she's got to deal with all the things that she promised to do during her campaign to become prime minister. She's got to work out how she's going to pay for you know energy bills, what she's going to do to help people. So I think suddenly that and then we're heading into the party conference season, which in Britain is normally, you know, it's all the parties getting together. Put Liberal Democrats had to cancel theirs because it clashed with the morning period, but we are normally in this sort of political frenzy at this point. And so I think, you know, people might be a bit surprised as to how quickly that rushes back in. And then, of course, as you're saying, you know, having to consider what's going on in Ukraine, what's going on in Italy, you know, other international things as well. So, yes, I think there's been a brief sort of holding of breath and now suddenly there'll be a sharp intake of breath after that. Yeah, well, we might talk a little bit more about that uh, just before the end of the programme. I did actually, uh, Tess, want to ask you just about a, a completely different story, actually, but it, a remark you just made about Victor Orban prompted me to, to, to think of this afresh, which is uh, to do with defending, we talk about unanimity presented in the media, but protecting media freedoms and giving editors those uh, freedoms, choices to make editorial decisions, but also to inform the public that's reading that material, whether it's in print or online or they're listening to it, greater information um, and authority to choose with confidence from where they source their their, their news. I know you've been watching this um, Media Freedom Act um, and obviously business was being done in Brussels on, I think, Thursday or, or Friday of this week. Um, this is really important, isn't it? Particularly while you have the likes of Orban prowling around, constantly looking to encroach and to roll back. Yeah, the EU Commission therefore has presented this um, week a proposal for a media, uh, European Media Freedom Act. Um, as usual, when the Commission proposes legislation, it comes with a brick of paper, and it was quite difficult for everyone to understand what the detail of it is. But immediately, criticism came from both sides, also quite usual for legislation proposed by the EU Commission. So you had publishers uh, that fear that their um, freedom might be managed by the Commission through these monitoring um, options that uh, it, that are foreseen now. And uh, on the other hand, criticism to this act came from the progressive side that is more concerned, like I would be, that um, editorial independence in a lot of critical media outlets, in especially in Eastern Europe, but also, for example, in countries like Greece and Bulgaria, is increasingly under pressure. So we do have to think how we keep um, media and uh, information free and and critic uh, and being critical is one of these things that Viktor Orban for sure doesn't want to to have direct critics is not something that he wants to have directed against himself so I think this media act which was proposed this week will go through scrutiny will be sort of changed discussed back and forth beaten up but in the end it's a very serious attempt and I think a very 
commendable one uh, to to keep uh, editorial independence on the top of the agenda. And of course, this not only concerns newspapers or state television, which is in under under a lot of stress in some of the countries, but also what do we do with social media? And that's something which is the next step. You know, the big social media platforms. How can we um, not have a control over? what they are doing in the sense that you want to limit their freedom to have information uh, being distributed, but we want to do have uh, them take responsibility for the misinformation that they are also distributing. Mm -hmm. And this is the big question where the freedom of publishers have to be uh, questioned in, in, in terms of harming the public they want to inform or disinform. Well, yeah, I guess one issue with this sort of uh, legislative approach is that it lends itself towards a something of a one-size-fits-all. It has to be. And it, it can't necessarily address the specific problems thrown up by the different stakeholders. And we know, Terry, that you know, the, these platforms, which are social media, they're comms, they're tech companies, but they're publishers, mm. although sometimes they would, would dispute it. It's very difficult to uh, shape their approach because they have such lobbying power. They've demonstrated time and again how adroit they are at... Mm sidestepping the demands of existing legislation, far less anything new. Yeah, also because they can say, well, we may be, you know, operating in the EU, but we're not necessarily based in the EU, so you've got no competence to decide what we can and can't publish. And I think, actually, you know, the Commission is putting this forward. I don't know how much it needs to have, whether this is something that needs to be signed off at a national government's level. I think they will have an awful lot of trouble getting this through some of the very governments that they want to criticise. And, you know, they, I think there will be a lot of countries that might see this as kind of overreach by the commission is saying it's not for you to decide what our media policy is and what our media rules are. And so I think getting something that's enforceable through is, is going to be quite hard. But one of the things I find do find interesting about this is the idea that they are explicitly trying to resist foreign disinformation and propaganda, particularly talking about uh, Russian-backed uh, disinformation and also talking about how, well, how do you deal with, say, China or, or Turkey that are also trying to influence... Um, the debate within Europe and it's talking about what they call in, in this report here the rogue media service providers including from certain third countries so again I mean it's it's an interesting thing and it's something that needs to be dealt with but how you identify what is you know foreign disinformation is you know I've looked at this sort of historically and it's it's really hard to do it's hard to work out the source of information and it's hard to stop it from coming in uh, so I think you know working on that although it's kind of you can see that it's a laudable thing to do it's quite difficult to actually create a mechanism that that does that hugely complex oh sorry Tessa go on you were going to I just add. wanted to add because you said one size fits all they actually you know all these when I studied all these uh, details in this Media Act proposal, I thought it was actually quite a lot fits in there in interpretation, and that will be the thing to be determined. So it's not necessarily that you have what what some of the publishers now fear that you'll get completely restricted in things. So it's a up to debate, and b there's a lot of room to maneuver in it. And the main thing of the act is also not the control because that would be more like a monitoring and not like a strict control. But the other thing is, of course, transparency. And that's very important. Who are the owners of these uh, foreign outlets? Who are the owners of these EU uh, media uh, companies? Who is benefiting from the ownership? And all these things are very crucial and will just simply serve for more transparency.
Uh, there'll be plenty more from Tessa and from Terry in a moment or two. Uh, we're going to be crossing to Hong Kong in just a moment. I just want to remind you of a couple of the main news stories we're following uh, this hour and today on Monocle 24, some of which we've already been talking about. Uh, yes, US President Joe Biden is the latest high-profile world leader to arrive here in London ahead of the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II tomorrow. More than 500 such dignitaries and heads of state uh, will be attending. We will probably talk more about that before the end of the show. Uh, meanwhile, close to two million people have been told to evacuate their homes on Kyushu Island in Japan ahead of a huge storm that's expected to make landfall imminently, bringing with it winds of more than 250 kilometres per hour and potentially half a metre of rain in just 24 hours. Uh, Fukuoka, the port city, is one that could be in the path of the typhoon Nanmadol, which is on its way. Uh, and in Ukraine, as well as those gains this week, the IAEA nuclear watchdog has confirmed that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant has begun receiving power from the national grid. The reactors are shut down there, of course, but it needs the external power to cool them and mitigate risk of meltdown. So that's another sliver of good news from Ukraine. Uh, 9.33, almost, here in London. Uh, but let's head east. We are going to get a roundup of stories making the headlines in Hong Kong, Monocle's Hong Kong Bureau Chief James Chambers, I believe, is there. Good afternoon to you, James. It's London calling. How do we find you today? Good morning, Tom. Very well, thank you. Um, now, tell me, uh, you have had a complicated uh, experience over the last couple of years. How are things on the ground where you are? Is, is Hong Kong going to reopen? Is it reopening? What's the state of play? Well, I spent the, I mean, the, the most, the majority of August in the UK, so you know, I was used to reading news on other things. But uh, it's been interesting coming back home to Hong Kong and kind of you know, jumping back into COVID-19. It's incredible how much newspaper space is still dominated uh, by the virus. And, and as you'll know, everyone else in the world has moved on. Um, but, you know, today's headline on the South China Morning Post will be music to everyone's ears uh, because it's like declaring hotel quarantine may be scrapped, uh, which is what we've all been waiting for. Um, you know, Hong Kong had some of the biggest restrictions when it comes to hotel quarantines in the world. Um, that's currently down to three days. Uh, it's something I had to experience recently. Um, but the fact that the government are finally uh, talking about potentially scrapping this altogether uh, uh, and moving to, to, to zero hotel quarantine um, would be good news to, for everyone here and, and everyone who wants to visit Hong Kong. Um, if, if only we could, uh, we could uh, have confidence and believe it were, were, were going to happen very soon. Yeah, we'll have to keep a watching brief on that one. James, I might ask you in a moment just to reflect a little bit on your take on what's been going on here in London. But to this point that we were discussing around the table here earlier around uh, bilaterals, meetings that may or may not take place here in London during the funeral sort of proceedings. Um, there's another interesting meeting again that may have dropped off some people's radar, but I think it's really worth flagging. And that's that uh, President Yoon uh, of uh, South Korea what, is set to meet uh, Japanese PM Kishida in New York, we think. Um, I don't know, what's your take? Is that going to happen? And if it does happen, how significant could that be? Yes, that's something that the, that's coming out of South Korea. The, the, the state or the official news agencies confirmed at the end of last week that uh, you know, a President Yoon is set to, to have a, a bilateral summit with the, the Japanese Prime Minister Kishida in New York on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly 
Uh, Yoon is on his way to London. He will be at the the Queen's funeral tomorrow, and then, um, you know, as you've discussed earlier in the show, uh, he will be one of the, the leaders flying on to, to New York for the for the General mm. Assembly. Um, and so, if if this in fact does happen, if this meeting, this official summit between these two men does uh, go ahead, it will be a huge step forward uh, for for these two countries who've had uh, a bit of a, a frosty relationship uh, over the last few years over the issue of uh, the, the, the Japanese colonial times and the wartime mm. occupation and the issues about forced labor and uh, comfort women. Um, that all kind of came up again during uh, President Moon's uh, uh, tenure in office. But uh, since Yoon came into power, he's been trying to patch things up. Uh, the, the Japanese on the Japanese side, they've been a bit more reluctant uh, to engage. But you know, if this meeting does go ahead, it will be an important step for two, you know, democracies and, and, and two U.S. important U.S. allies in the region. Well, James, stay with us. I just want to bring um, Terry and Tessa in, just on a sort of peripheral point about this. Both of the things actually that James has mentioned there, obviously. Covid, the the story that never really goes away, the restrictions on travel, and this idea of uh, you and Kishida potentially meeting, really underscores this point about what we've been missing, both in human terms and in dip- diplomatic terms, going right back to the start of 2020, which is to get together in person. It does tie into what we were talking about, the opportunity to meet on the margins and maybe get a dialogue going that would otherwise be too too complicated. Do you feel that we're we're back in a world where diplomacy is being done as it was before is there still a long way to go i mean is it the same i guess for journalists you don't get the same information out of a source if you're on a phone or on a zoom as you do meeting face to face where are we at and how important is it um tessa to ensure that we're doing diplomacy the right way if you like well for sure and this is the, also the good thing about this summer that everything started as, as if nothing has happened for two years. I mean, we look back uh, at these first months of the pandemic and the, the tremendous adaptation process we went through within weeks. And, uh, and it, it looks like a bad dream in a way. But I also wonder how it will continue now in the next weeks. I think, um, you know, the Chinese with their non-zero policy sort of didn't really work. But the being careful about uh, the next pandemic wave is definitely a good thing. And we will see also how many of the people attending this funeral tomorrow might actually in the end be COVID positive and have to stay in bed for a little while. So let's see about that. Yeah, well, we have kept having this super spreader events, didn't we? This could yeah. this could certainly be one. But it's interesting, isn't it? You know, Terry, that is a good point. Looking at China more broadly as a political force, as a as a as a destabilizing force, as a disruptor globally very important for the likes of uh, South Korea and Japan to be working more closely together despite the huge complexities of their relationship UNGA, this sort of event, they are critical opportunities that must be taken. Yes they are and I think one of the things that we've probably missed out on in the last couple of years is the sort of the accidental or the the person that bumps into somebody in a corridor that maybe it wasn't organised, maybe it wasn't planned, but people have a conversation that that wasn't intended. And I think that can go both ways. Obviously, that could be a good breakthrough. That could be something that goes wrong. Uh, And, you know, obviously, it's interesting, all the people who are excluded, and and there's been some fuss in British politics this week as to whether China uh, should be invited, whether because, you know, the British Parliament has been very critical of the Chinese regime, saying, well, you can come, but you should shouldn't be allowed to attend anything within the precincts of the Houses of Parliament. So, you know, people are obviously upset about... I'm going back to the point about sort of general meetings. I mean, what would have happened 
had the Queen died during COVID, we wouldn't have been allowed the queue. You wouldn't have been allowed to go and stand, you know, hundreds and thousands of people, you know, leave your house, let alone to go and queue up. And I think, again, that's one of the things that people have found really comforting is to just talk with strangers in, mm. a, in a public space, in a queue, thousands and thousands of people. And, yeah, it would have been even more strange had that not been something that was allowed to happen because people were too worried about the, the health consequences. There's also an interesting point, actually, if you think uh, of this new uh, diplomatic language that this government here in Britain is um, using now. So Liz Truss this afternoon, yesterday already started to meet not the, the, the leaders of the European Union capitals that, she, that uh, previous um, governments would have met you know, first when they would come to London at a mass event like this. But she made a point to meet the Five Eyes leaders. So Australia, Canada, New Zealand and the United States um, were sort of on the priority list, which is a clear signaling to global Britain future that she's uh, at least hoping to achieve. But also the ad only other European leader that she invited was uh, Andrzej Duda from Poland. So it's it's quite interesting that this new uh, era of, of meeting in person again immediately also tells you a lot of how, where, in what space, in what political space leaders are. Uh, well, James, let me come back to you in Hong Kong. Just, I've got one other story I want to ask you about, but just briefly on the on the sort of uh, the, the pomp and circumstance. Have you felt? Have you? I don't know. Have you felt very far away? You're a good few thousand miles away um, from your sort of one of your spiritual motherlands. What's it been like watching uh, these events unfolding, for, uh, sort of remotely, if you like? It's been very strange, actually, because uh, the the news broke in Hong Kong while I was in a, a government isolation uh, centre, serving my time as someone who's tested positive for COVID. Um, so that was very, very weird. Um, but uh, kind of even stranger still was when uh, I walked, took a walk to the, the, the British consulate here in Hong Kong, which is not far from our, our bureau. Uh, and we have somewhat of our own queue uh, forming outside uh, and stretching not quite as far as it does in London, but uh, considerably further than I expected. And people are, are waiting to, to sign a book of condolence that has been set up. Um, and we're having an you know, extremely hot September here. It's like 35 degrees. And I walked along this queue and saw all these kind of Hong Kongers, you know, with their umbrellas, just patiently queuing very stoically to sign this book. Um, I don't know whether I was slightly embarrassed or not, that I had no intention whatsoever to, to join that queue and put myself through that. Um, but it, you know, it was a reminder of how, you know, important she was uh, to a lot of people here uh, and part of their kind of remembrance of of the kind of pre-97 times. Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting dynamics. Um, just briefly, we talked a little bit about some uh, new stories uh, of consequence in terms of the media landscape uh, in Europe, um, James, a little bit earlier. And there's a there's a, a nice media story. It's a, a definitely a happy, a good news story uh, about print from your neck of the woods. And it involves uh, Min Jones, who I think, you know, he's been to see us here at Monocle a couple of times, an, an absolutely excellent fellow. Um, but tell us about this one. It's a, a, a really brilliant title, which is Going to Stay Around, which is good news. That's right. It's called the the Mekong Review. And it's, I guess it's Asia's closest equivalent to things like the London Review of Books. Um, and it's a, it is an excellent print publication. It's a quarterly uh, and it covers 
Well, initially it covered the whole of Southeast Asia, hence the, the, the title Mekong, which is a, a famous river which, which runs through like Cambodia and Vietnam. Um, and it's been running since 2015. It's one of my kind of favorite publications. Whenever I used, well, I used to go traveling around Asia on, on reporting trips, I would love to pick up a copy in a bookshop and, and then go to a bar after a long day of reporting and, and, and sit down and flip through it. Um, but the, you know, we had some sad news a, a couple of weeks ago when, when the founder, uh, Min Boy Jones, announced that he was actually going to close it down. Uh, for very personal reasons, it's, it's, it is a very impressive publication that one man has been operating for all this time with a, with a crew of volunteers. Uh, but he's moved from uh, from Asia to to London, and he just thought it was time to, to 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 fold it. But last week we had the great news that actually he's he's found a buyer. Uh, in fact, there was a bit of a scramble for it, and, and he had seven off official offers to buy it, uh, and so he sold it to some. Hong Kongers who are apparently living in Australia. We don't know the, the exact uh, new owners, but um, it's going to continue operating uh, as normal. And so we'll all be looking to the uh, the next issue um, very excitedly. Yeah, we will indeed. It's an excellent title. That's good news. James, uh, we always like it to end on a on a slightly more upbeat and optimistic note. Uh, our Hong Kong Bureau Chief, James James. James, it sounds like a storm's coming. I don't know where you're going, but make sure you take an umbrella. Thank you very much. See, I've got lots of good advice for you. Uh, You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tom Edwards. More from Tessa and Terry coming up just after this. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long that it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise. A place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Wherever you find yourself in Spain, you won't be far from an expression of the country's deep commitment to its culture, and it's never been easier to soak up its music, art, literature and traditions. In Spain, art is present at every turn, and culture's taken seriously. Museums, galleries and cinemas are cherished parts of almost every town and city. Great sculptures prowl the streets and stand watch over the beaches. Vast museums house priceless works by Goya, Velázquez and El Greco. Alongside giants like Picasso, Nero and Dali, new artists are nurtured in galleries that serve their cities with cutting-edge contemporary art. And then there's the music. There's far more to Spain than castanets and flamenco. Spaniards know how to throw a party. Some of them last all summer. With a festival for almost any taste, just book your tickets and get stuck in. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. You are back with Monocle on Sunday. Me, Tom Edwards, in the chair today. Still with me are Terry Stiasny and Tessa Siskiewicz. Um I wanted to get a, a sense from both of you about um, one of the things which we sort of talked about a little bit already, and it's something that our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, was writing about yesterday, actually, in his weekend column, uh, which people can sign up to at monocle.com forward slash minute. Um, he was talking about sort of synchronisation and what happens when people come together. We've already talked a little bit about what motivates people. Um and I think there's always a bit of... People are quite guarded, I think, often in the UK about being seen to be too outwardly uh, participatory. You don't want to look like one of those Pyongyang <laughs> uh, military yards. Um, but it's something interesting about what these kinds of moments do say about shared values. 
we're in a funny moment, aren't we, for Brand Britain, Tessa? Do you think, though, that there is something positive, unifying, and critically enduring? We talked about this like Tuesday wake up moment, but do you get the sense that this could help to point Britain in a direction that's maybe not as bad as the direction of travel has seen for the last 18 months or so? I don't think so. I think Britain will go through a rough patch of uh, identity crisis after all this. There are small things that are quite nice that I like to see, for example, the fact that not only did the grandchildren of the Queen come to, to stand in respect for her, but also the female grandchildren and also the children, like also the children were in, the females one were included. So there's a touch of a sign of a new era to come there but you know as a I'm not a monarchist so I think this has a limited effect on society mm -hmm. in general I think it will be very hard for King Charles to carry this feeling of unity once people are now starting to turn their attention to him and the financial situation that the royals also uh, haven't He's a very good, uh, he and also the Queen actually uh, were very um, observant of the financial situation. We always think, especially in Europe, where we don't know so much about them and only get the superficial news, that they are just waddling around here and doing nice ceremonial services. But in fact, they are managing their, uh, their properties and their wealth quite well and have been forward looking in terms of, um, you know, how windmill farms can the wind farms in the shores that uh, that the royal family owns are being very lucrative and all these kind of things. And even the, the Queen herself has negotiated this with Tony Blair at the time to get the revenues of windmill farms. Well, well yeah, so and they're, they're hugely and they're hugely wealthier, sort of pro rata than they have been probably almost any point, Absolutely. other than going back a few a few hundred years. But there doesn't seem to be. I agree. I think it's not exactly a moment of some progressive beacon, and there doesn't seem to be any appetite, indeed, even any tolerance to talk about serious structural reform, which is quite concerning if you are, as I think you and I both possibly, not not, not royalist or monarchist in, in character. And Terry, just quickly, because time is short, and I, I want to play Andrew Muller's musings on one interesting aspect about this, which is not how Brand Britain has been uh, portrayed, but how brands have responded. Not necessarily particularly adroitly, he will explain. Um, but just on this point about this moment, this, this dawning reality, Liz Truss's Tuesday morning moment... Um, You've got the Fed in the US, the suggestions now, interest rates will be above 4% all through next year. It, it really feels like it's going to get very, very much worse before it gets better. Uh, I don't know. Are there any, have you found any slivers, any silver linings to that particular cloud? Uh, not yet, but I think, again, we've had a, a week of not really looking closely at it. So I think, yeah, again, suddenly once people get back to normal, I mean, it's going to be a very, very strange day tomorrow here in the UK. Almost everything is going to be shut. We were talking about sort of people coming together collectively. You can go to the cinema and watch the funeral for free. You will be able to go to a big public uh, screen and watch things for free. You know, whether whether people go and do that, I expect they will, given the size of the queues. Um, but, yeah, suddenly I think people wake up on Tuesday and go... Right, OK, all that stuff we haven't been dealing with now. Better get on with it. OK, I think people better tune in on Tuesday morning to Monocle 24 and see what reality confronts us all. Um, Terry and Tessa, fab to have you with us uh, on the programme. Thanks to you both for coming in. Uh, let's give the last word, or last but one word, to Andrew Muller. Uh, he always wraps up the week's Stranger Stories, but this week, as I mentioned, he's been talking about how brands have been stepping or misstepping through the complexities of the past seven days. Let's have a listen. <laughs> 
We learned this week that there are weeks when this taking a wry sidelong look at the news racket really is a bit of a high wire act, without, if you'll indulge us, any sort of net protecting us should we topple from the thrashing shark tank of outraged public opinion. Such are the risks we run for your entertainment. We learned, or really concluded, when we contemplated our options that we had to pick one from two. The first, which certainly seemed the easiest, was to direct the ensuing few minutes of satirical jocularity away from the obvious and instead make fun of stuff which had no bearing on or relationship to the obvious. We swiftly learned, however, that this was more difficult than it first appeared, as the obvious appeared to be one of those rare news stories so huge that it caused something of an instant drought of other news, because everybody who, in any other week, would have been perpetrating any amount of nonsense, daftness and folly was inside watching the obvious on television. But it's a tricky business. Morbidly attentive listeners to these weekly monologues will have noticed that last week's did not appear in its regular time slot. A shame, as it really was one of the funniest we'd ever assembled. Indeed, very arguably the funniest six or seven minutes of radio ever recorded in all of human history, and now you'll never know. While it contained nothing obviously subversive or tasteless, not any more than usually anyway, running it in the circumstances just seemed sort of off. For some reason, let's have the chorus of general muttered agreement. The way forward this week, we eventually decided, was to take a series of swings at the fact that nobody else really quite seems to know how to respond either. This, we reckoned, might bring to bear some wintry and fundamentally inclusive humour upon a period of widespread sorrow, mourning and general discombobulation, and this is obviously by far the more significant consideration, ease us under the radar of those seething witchfinders invigilating against those failing to properly do whatever it is we're all supposed to be doing. And yes, that other chorus is probably overdue at this point. Come on. <laughs> Just get on with it. So we learned this week that the generally preferred method of showing respect seems to be not doing whatever it is you usually purport to do. And yes, we did have a bit of a think about following this example ourselves, but were concerned that our employers would then have shown their respect by not paying us. Anyway, in not a few cases, if we're honest, and why would we lie, we learned that the connections between the downing of tools and the showing of respect often verged on the outright tenuous. We learned, for example, that Heathrow Airport proposed to show its respect for the late Queen Elizabeth II by cancelling a number of flights, an announcement which will have prompted a great many recent would-be passengers to ponder what else Heathrow has been respecting pretty much all this year. Righto, up and running. Reckon we'll get away with this. We learned that other similarly motivated closures and postponements covered the spectrum from the obtuse to the downright recherche. We learned that Norwich City Council had closed a bicycle rack 
We learned that Guinea Pig Awareness Week had changed its date to avoid a clash with the Elysiac observances, although, ironically, the mockery generated by this announcement marked the first recorded awareness of Guinea Pig Awareness Week. We learned that a well-loved amusement jetty in Southwold had shuttered, possibly submitting to... Peer pressure. And we learned that perhaps no single entity exemplified the bewilderment of the moment quite as poignantly, if not necessarily deliberately, as centre parks, proprietors of holiday resorts for middle-class British or Irish people who cannot be bothered going overseas, and who can blame them what with all the respect British and Irish airports have been showing in recent months. We learned in the first instance that Centre Parks planned to close entirely for 24 hours around this coming Monday's funeral, and we learned very shortly afterwards that this announcement had elicited a mildly riotous response from Centre Parks inmates who were not terrifically keen on interrupting their holidays. Let's have a clip evoking an amount of indignation. We then learned that Centre Park's Crisis Management Division had hit upon the brilliant solution of allowing visitors to remain on the site but stay confined to their lodges, upon which we also learned that it is apparently too soon for the COVID-19 lockdown nostalgia trip. Let's have an even larger amount of indignation. We finally learned that Centre Parks had capitulated to the degree of allowing guests to roam the compound freely, but that nothing would actually be open. It remains unclear to us that any of this, and or the uncountable further such examples, was what she would have wanted. Indeed, during her seven-decade reign, we didn't learn much about what she wanted, which we realise was kind of the idea, but we can at least presume that she might have been quite pleased with the one cohort of Britain that did seem to have some idea how to behave. We learned, because we had the live coverage from Westminster Hall on in the background while we tapped this out, that there's something weirdly affecting about watching an endless queue of random citizenry shuffling silently, curiously and decorously past the unifying totem of their diverse tribe, the hush interrupted only by the clanking and stomping occasioned by the changing of the guard. A nation which has changed beyond recognition, finding something in communing with an institution which barely changed at all. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much indeed, as always, to Andrew Muller. And uh, if you want to hear Andrew's take on tomorrow's proceedings here in London, after what I'm sure will be a fascinating and intriguing day uh, do join him he'll be with his panel of guests at 1800 london time for the monocle daily of course you can keep across the news and views on what's happening here in london and around the world on the globalist at seven and on our midday show the briefing too uh keep it tuned to monocle 24 it is your one-stop shop for everything you need in audio that's it from me, Tom Edwards, and the team for this week. Huge thanks to Terry Stiasny, to Tessa Siskovitz, and to James Chambers for joining me on the programme today. Thanks, too, to our producer in Zurich, Desiree Bandley, and to our studio managers here in London for keeping me company and keeping the show on the rails, Nora Hole and Adam Heaton. Monocle on Sunday is back at the same time next week. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening. <laughs>